I want to welcome all of you across our network. I want to greet our Bettendorf family, also each of you online and everybody here at Rock Island. This is week five of our Game of Life series, and we have one more weekend to go after this weekend in a journey that's been positioning us to navigate the choices that we make in life. Because regardless of if those choices are easy or hard, they set us on a path forward. And so we're trying to make sure we know how to position ourselves to navigate those crossword moments in a way that honor God. And we're using the game of life to help us do that. See, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you've given your life to him, then, then you've predetermined to obey him. And so the task is not to decide things, but to discern everything. It's to position ourselves to be able to, to listen and obey. If we can't hear him, then we can't discern. If we can't discern, we don't know how to live, love, or lead. We need to position ourselves to listen and obey. Which is one of the reasons we took time last week to talk about a very practical and helpful method of, of trying to stay within the will of God, of, of listening and obeying. And I want to take a moment to review it. If you were here last week, it'll be a refresher. If you weren't, it'll give you just a teaser, a bit about the, what the conversation was. And the rest of this is actually online at heritageqc.com under our media tab. But let me just give you a cliff note version of, of what we we're talking about. Because long before riverboat captains had GPS available to them, they would navigate difficult sections of the river using channel markers. They would be poles or posts or pillars that were placed out on shore that they would use to align themselves to the safe channel. And if they, what they wanted is to line all three up so they could only see one. If they could see more than one, they knew they were outside or needed to adjust left or right to stay within the channel. It's a pretty good concept. Now, most people, when they try to figure out and, and do the will of God, to hear and obey, they look at one of three things. They, we look at what we feel. It's a, how do I feel about this particular thing? Do I feel good? Do I feel bad? Does this feel right? Does it feel wrong? Am I, am I calm or am I nervous? How do I feel? Now, it seems to make sense, but it's highly unreliable. It, it, it lacks clarity and leaves us with uncertainty because we can feel things that are actually difficult, but God positions us in those spaces for his will in our life. So feeling leaves us with a lack of clarity. So then many people just kind of look at what they hear. It's like what other people are saying around them, what other people are doing around them, and if we can find somebody that will agree with what we're thinking, when well, we see that as confirmation. But the reality is, we look hard enough, we can find somebody to agree with us. And the cacophony of voices around us can be overwhelming and confusing, and again, what we hear leaves us with a lack of clarity, a lack of certainty. So then many people just look at what they have. It's the proverbial open or closed door. It either is or it isn't. It's possible or impossible. It's easy or hard. But, but listen, circumstance is an unreliable filter for knowing and doing the will of God. God leads us into places that, that are difficult, that aren't easy, that, that are impossible because he's the God of the impossible. He makes things possible. 
So, so these three things independently aren't quite right. In fact, these three things, they're not inherently wrong. They just don't go far enough. They don't go deep enough. And they position us to try to decide something when we're really supposed to be discerning. And we discern, we look at life and how the Holy Spirit's working in life. We really shouldn't be looking at what we feel, hear, and have. We should be considering internal, external, and concrete. See, the Holy Spirit works in the world. In fact, God, Jesus said, look, I'm going to leave. I'm going to give you an advocate. He's going to be in you and with you. He's going to help you. That Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives within everyone who, who receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, when we're walking with God, we have no overt rebellion in our life, no overt sin in our life. We're praying, we're reading His Word, and the Holy Spirit in us leads us internally. So we can have an internal desire that starts to come under those conditions. But that's not the only thing. God also works in the lives of others. And so we have other people who walk with Jesus to speak externally into that process. That would be our Christian spouse, our Christian parents, spiritual leaders. As God speaks to us through his spirit in us, he's speaking to others. And there's confirmation in the internal and the external. But it's not just the internal and external. There's the concrete. And that's how God works by his spirit in the world. And we want to see is all three of these line up. And when all three of them line up, it's a really good indication that we're in that safe channel of his will. This isn't a magic formula. It's a helpful tool because we navigate knowns and unknowns in life. The game of life, the board game of life navigates knowns and unknowns. We, we hit crossroads where we make decisions. You start out the game deciding you're going to start college or start career. After that, there's things that we have to do, things we can do, and things we can't not do based on the previous decisions. But we're navigating knowns and unknowns, trying to win the game. And in a very similar way to the game of life, in real life, we're navigating knowns and unknowns. Not to have the most money at the end, which is how you win this game, but to, but to accomplish the God-given purpose in our life where he can do all that he wants in and through us, to live life to the full, to live in the true freedom that Jesus came to give. That tension puts us between certainty and uncertainty, and it's a foundational concept for this whole series is reflected in the tension between certainty and uncertainty. What we know and don't know. What we can see and not see. And in that tension, God wants us in our relationship with Jesus to drive down into dependence. It's a place of trust. It's a place of obedience. Every time we obey, God reveals himself more to us. He wants us to sit in stillness and trust and dependence. But the tension between certainty and uncertainty pulls us. And when we drift over here into the uncertainty, we take up an insecure posture based in fear, we're living independently. On the flip side, when we're confident, we think we know what should happen, we can demand something of God in our arrogance and pride because we think we know what should be, but we're living independently. When God wants us to sit in a place of dependence amidst the tension of known and unknown, because that's where he shows up. And every time we drift to independence, it's a problem in fact, independence is always a precursor to disobedience. Independence is always the precursor to disobedience. And if you've got a note guide today, that's your first fill-in if you're tracking along with that. That independence is always a precursor to disobedience. It's the posture that sets a stage for us to choose disobedience. Independence positions us to disobey. Dependence positions us to obey. And whenever we embrace independence, it's always the precursor to choosing disobedience. And I want to look at that in the life of Moses and the Israelites today. But let me just frame a bit of the journey to this point. You see, the people of God, Israel, had been in Egypt enslaved for 400 years until God sends Moses to free them. And to free a people who has never known freedom. 
They never knew what it was like to live in freedom. And through some signs and wonders in, in the ten plagues in Egypt, we hit Exodus chapter 12 and they're free. They're free. And God goes before them in a pillar, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. But not just that, he's teaching them and instructing them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And by the time we reach the end of the book of Exodus, God is dwelling among his people in cloud and fire. If you're familiar with how the Bible is structured, then you step into Leviticus. And Leviticus is God teaching his people how to worship through things like offerings and feasts. As we keep rolling through Leviticus, we end up hitting numbers. And if you've got a Bible today, I'd love for you to grab it and turn to the book of Numbers. We're going to be starting in chapter 13. But the beginning of the book of Numbers, there's a time of a, a census, a counting, where the people are counted. And, and, and the 12 tribes, excluding Levi, which, you know what, there are actually 13 tribes at this point. Levi's excluded because they're the priests. They're counting the fighting men, which would be the men over the 20 years and older. They're counting the remaining 12 tribes because there's 13, because Joseph, who would have represented the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, his kids, now represent those two tribes. So there's really 13 tribes, so only 12 tribes, excluding Levi, are counted in the census. And there's more than 600,000 fighting men. 600,000. Which it's pretty safe to guess that there are probably close to 600,000 fighting women and at least 600,000 fighting little kids running around. I mean, this is a large group. It's like 2 million people. Some say it's like 3 million people. If it's 2 million, that's five times the population of the Quad Cities. This is a large group. But they were happy because they were free. But it didn't take long for them to start to grumble and complain. But God is gracious and he's patient. He gives them manna. He gives them quail. He leads them on a journey to a place called the Kadesh Oasis. It's about a two-year journey before they actually get there. And when they arrive, God says, hey, send some guys to go check out your new, new land. And this is in Numbers chapter 13, starting in verses 1 and 2, that we can read this. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am going to give the Israelites which I am giving the Israelites, from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. Now, this is an exciting time. But in a moment, the tension between certainty and uncertainty is going to blow this whole thing up in dramatic fashion. But first, they pick the 12. They pick these 12 men, best of the best of their tribe. They're kind of like they form this special operations team to do this covert mission into the new land. And their guys named Shemua and Shaphat and Egal and Palti and Gadiel and Amiel and, and Caleb and Hoshea. I mean, these are the guys that represent the best of the best of their tribe. And they go out. Now, you've got you to understand the anticipation that the people have to be feeling at this moment. This has been a long time coming. I know my family, when we're on a road trip and we pull up to a hotel at the, at the end of a long day... And, and they all want to get out of the car and unpack and get inside. I, you get, they have to stay in the car until I check in. We pull up to a vacation house and they want to get out and start having fun. We got to check in, get the keys, get the rules first. They got to stay in the car. And right now, the entire nation of Israel has to stay in the car. Except for these 12 guys. The anticipation had to be great. But let me pause and remind you of a very important truth, a, a reality about dependence. See, dependence is not based in strength and ability, but trust and obedience. Dependence is not an issue of strength and ability, but trust and obedience. It, it's not rooted in our abilities. It's not rooted in our skills. It's, it's not rooted in, in even our circumstances. Or It doesn't always make sense. It's not always logical. It, dependence is rooted in who God is, in his power, his strength, his love, his character. 
Dependence is not an issue of our strength and ability, but our trust and obedience in his strength and ability. And this principle is going to go sideways for the people of Israel in the very next few parts of Scripture. See, those 12 guys go out and they do this recon. They spend 40 days checking out the new land, and they find it's amazing. In one valley, they find a cluster of grapes so big they have to carry it on a pole between two people. It's, it's amazing. And after 40 days, they, they come back to report. And, and, and they all report the same thing. They report abundance. They report mel- a land flowing of milk and honey. But they also talk about a strong people. And they talk about fortifications. And they talk about giants called Nephilim who made them feel like grasshoppers next to these giants. And they all report the same thing. But they do it with two different postures. See, two of the spies take a posture of dependence, and they say, God said, go, we need to go. But the ten take a posture of independence, out of fear, and they say, we shouldn't go. Many of you know it's Joshua and Caleb who say, we need to go. It's the rest of those guys, who we don't know their names, who don't. Now, this leads to a debate. The debate leads to mutiny. And in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, we can read this. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What in the world is going on? These people saw the wonders of God. They they had been enslaved for years. They're free. They're stepping into their necks, but they want to look back. What's what's happening? Listen, it's fear and pride that allows them to choose independence. Independence. It's, it's tragic. But at the same time, you and I can experience the same dynamic. We're positioned for something good and something great, but we choose to go back to what we know. Now, in a few moments, we're going to be reminded of a principle we talked about early on in our series, that everyone loses when we choose independence. But let me just take a moment to talk to you about one other reality about obedience. See, obedience is established in seasons. Obedience is established as we... As we, as we, as we, when we, like, it, like, it strengthened and grows in seasons. It's over journey. When it's built, it's grown, it's developed over a journey. Obedience is established in seasons, but it's defined in moments. It's defined in moments. Obedience is something that, that we either are or are not. Obedience is is not defined by percentages or averages or preponderance or we have a majority of demonstrated obedience so that makes us obedient. Obedience is defined in moments. It's defined in every moment. We either are or we are not. And our obedience is not defined by what we've done previously but what we do now. And we can't bank obedience. We can't store it up. Our kids can't point to their obedience the previous day to say they're not going to obey us today. Like, hey, mom, I would obey you today, but yesterday I obeyed you three times, so I'm good to go today. That will not fly in my house, and I guarantee it won't fly in your house. You can't bank obedience. Obedience either is or is not. It's defined in moments. Yet the implications of obeying or disobeying ripple well beyond the moments of its definition. 
Our obedience is defined by what we do now. It's like loyalty. Loyalty is not defined over tenure. Loyalty is defined in a moment. We either are or we are not in a moment. And our obedience is not defined by past faithfulness, but present practices. It's what we're doing now. It's defined in moments, every moment. Look at what James wrote. This is really important when it comes to understanding obedience. He said, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It's a sin, not just a bad idea, which it is. It's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And, 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 and this is despite and regardless any justification we may think for why we don't have to do it. The Israelites thought they had justification of why not to go into the new land. But it's a sin. There's no, there's no justification definition around this. If you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, you step into a place of sin. It's rebellion. And, and the Israelites chose because they chose independence out of fear. They chose not to obey. They chose to pick a new leader out of pride. But Joshua and Caleb don't give up on them. They, here's what happens. When, when the people say that, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes in the, this demonstrative act. And, and they say these words. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be what? Oh, come on now, Bandorf, get in. Do not be what? Afraid. afraid. Don't step from dependence to independence out of fear and insecurity. Do not be afraid of them. Everybody loses when we choose independence. Do not be afraid. Dependence is not based in our ability or strength. It's based in trust and obedience. And, and for Joshua and Caleb, they had this posture to say, look, God said it, so we're going to sit in dependence. We're going to trust him. We're going to obey him. They were choosing his word. They were going to choose the fact that God is someone who, who honors his word, and they were going to honor him with dependence. But the ten said, look, this is bad. This is, this is dangerous. And out of fear, they, drove, they came over here. They chose independence. And then they drifted over here and said, and we're just going to go back. We're going to pick a whole new leader. We're going to rebel against the authority of what is because we know what's supposed to happen. We're going to go back to Egypt. Now, now Joshua and Caleb, they, they try to convince them to stop, but it doesn't work. In fact, the people talk about killing them in verse 10. They're going to stone them. They've already decided to oust Moses. They've decided not to go into the promised land. And they've decided to go back to Egypt. This is wrong and bad on lots of levels. But as Oswald Chambers aptly stated, here's what he said. He said, beware of looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become someone you've never been. That's good. <laughs> Beware of looking back. Beware of wanting to go back. It's okay to look back to learn, to remember God's faithfulness, but don't look back to lust. Don't, go, don't, don't look back to go back to that thing. Beware of going back when God is trying to call you forward, call you into something next. When, when, often when we're doing that, we, we forfeit what we really want most for what we're just entertaining now. And, and, and often it's that tension of certainty and uncertainty we're trying to 
kill. We're trying to eliminate that thing. God does not remove the tension. He gives us a place to sit in that tension so we can have certainty amidst uncertainty. And most often we look back, most often we choose independence. We're trying to alleviate the tension between certainty and uncertainty, and we're taking control, and we're trusting ourselves. We're choosing self-reliance. And whenever we look back when God wants us to go forward, we miss out. In Israel, man, they wanted to be free. But that fear and that pride led them to long to look to go back. And they forfeited what they really wanted most for what they wanted in that moment. And it's tragic. Even though they'd seen God perform wonders, even though they saw him go ahead of them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, all that took second seat to fear and pride as they embraced that posture of independence. And they decided not just to look back, but to actually go back. It's tragic. Because, because in a moment, they go from being poised to receive God's promises to being positioned to experience his punishment. If you're looking in your Bible, you can look at what happens next. God shows up. God shows up in that moment. Boom! Freaks everybody out. They all see it. And he is livid. Livid. He, he wants to annihilate everybody, start over with Moses, and develop a whole new people out of Moses. But in that moment, Moses takes a posture of dependence, and he intercedes on behalf of the people, and he asks God to relent. And God does. It's a beautiful moment of grace. But there are always implications for independence, whether we like it or not. Because the deal is that the forgiveness, forgiveness removes guilt, not implications. Forgiveness removes guilt, not implications. God's forgiveness is complete, but depending on, on our disobedience, depending on our choices, depending on how we chose to live independently, there can be lasting ripples. Look, we can, we can forgive in a moment of betrayal, but it takes time to rebuild trust. There's implications. If, if you commit arson or you commit murder, there, you can find forgiveness in that, but the house is still burned and the person's still dead. Forgiveness. Forgiveness removes guilt but not necessarily the implication. It removes all guilt, but not all repercussions. So after Moses steps in, God says this. Here's what he says. He says, I have forgiven them as you have asked. He's talking to Moses. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times... Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. This had to be really hard to hear. And if you're thinking about the times where you have drifted to independence and you have failed to obey and you're thinking of your implications, it's even hard for you to hear today. But here's the good news. God still works in the implications he doesn't remove. For those who love him, for those who trust him and obey him, he still works in the implications. Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things for the good of those who love him. We like that verse. That's hopeful for us. It's a good deal. I love that he works in all things, especially the junk of my life, for those who love him. Now, here's the deal. Jesus said, if we love him, we will obey him. Those who don't obey don't love so there's a connection between God's ability to work good in all things, and it's that love peace. 
See, ultimately, if we, if we love, we obey. If we don't obey, we don't love. But when we love, he works all things for the good of those who loves him. And he works in the implications. Even though he doesn't always remove them. So here's a takeaway. The promises of God are experienced in obedience. The promises of God are experienced in obedience. His promises are not dependent upon our strength and ability. They're dependent upon our willingness to trust and obey, our love expressed in obedience. It's predicated on obedience. It's ushered in by obedience. The promises of God are only experienced in obedience. That's why, that's one of the reasons why Joshua and Caleb are, are only, the only men to make it into the promised land. Here's what God says in verses 29 and 30. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Yephuneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. God's promises are experienced in obedience. The Israelites experienced the death of hundreds of thousands of people over a 40-year period. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert after this, one year for every day the spies were in the land. 40 years of wandering. The the only people who didn't die were Joshua and Caleb. And then there's this whole group behind. It would be the people who are 19 years and younger who journeyed that 40 years watching their parents and grandparents die. And then the people who were born in that 40-year window who never known anything else, who just heard about what could have been and watched everybody who they knew and loved except for those right ahead of them die. This was a tragedy. It was an awful thing that one generation in their independence chose and everyone loses when we choose independence. Because they couldn't see, they didn't believe. And therefore they didn't obey. Because they could not see God's faithfulness, they couldn't see his provision, they couldn't see his plan, they chose not to believe his promise, not to believe his word, not to believe his power, not to trust those things and they didn't obey. And as a result, they paid a great price with a significant generational ripple. But the crazy thing is, first they tried to fix it with more independence. But doing the right thing the wrong way is always problematic. See, here's what ends up happening in verse 39. When Moses reported this, which was all that God had said, to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. And early the next morning, early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. Too little, too late. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And Moses says, hey, don't do it. Don't do this. God is not going with you. He's not going before you. You're not, it's not going to work out. Don't go. But they go anyway. And the Amalekites and Canaanites beat them down. Because doing the right thing the wrong way is always problematic. Delayed obedience is not obedience. And everyone loses when we choose independence. Because his promises are available and experienced in obedience, in dependence. So with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the people who enter the land, they're like 59 years old as the oldest person. And again, you have all those people who were born in the desert who've not known anything else, just hearing the stories of what could have been. You know, as I process this whole story, there's lots of things to look at in this dynamic. But for me, I wonder, how does this happen? 
How does a people who is set free from centuries of bondage, who, who leaves with Egypt with great expectation, who sees the signs and wonders of God, who, who watches God move by a cloud and fire ahead of them, watches God provide manna and quail along the way, see him part the, the Red Sea, how do they end up here? How, how does it end up this way? Well, the simple is, is the same way, simple answer is the way we do. See, Israel allowed the uncertainty to lead them out of fear to embrace independence and insecurity. From there, they then thought they knew what should happen and independently with pride and arrogance decided what should happen. They forfeited what could be based on what they knew. They thought small and they suffered big. They chose their self-reliance and their own comfort as their place of hope. And everybody ends up suffering. Now, we may not be facing a literal crossing into a new land and giants ahead of us, but we face things where God's asking us to step into next and new in, in a posture of dependence. And we're all tempted to drift left or right. So what? Why are we talking about this? Well, the reality is that Obedience is important to God. Not, not just partial obedience, not delayed obedience, full immediate, full immediate obedience. The, Israels, the Israelites, they balked at this. They, they hesitated. They hadn't even lived out their plan yet, and God, that was enough for God to show up and want to bring the smack down on them. Because the moment they started to shift from dependence to independence, it was disobedience. And God values obedience. It's the same for us. In 1 Samuel, we can read this. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. This is really important to understand. Obedience matters. Because love leads to freedom as, it li as it's lived out in obedience. Next fill in if you're tracking in the note guide. That love leads to freedom as it's lived out in obedience. Look, it, love without obedience will always lack freedom because it's not love. Love obeys. Jesus said it. The, the obedience that we demonstrate, that obedience always leads to greater freedom because obedience isn't the goal. It's the means to get to the goal. The goal is full life in Jesus. The goal is freedom in him. And God's love leads to freedom for us and others as we obey. I'm not talking about rules and regulations in obedience. I'm talking about love expressed in obedient trust, not out of this like compliance out of fear dynamic. Obedience is the evidence of faith and, and freedom is its goal. And I like what, how pastor and, and author Erwin McManus frames this. He said it this way. He said, obedience is not the end game. Obedience is only our calling so that we can step into our freedom. Obedience isn't the goal. Obedience is the mean by which we step into the goal. It's freedom. God desired freedom for his people. And every time they chose independence, they imprisoned themselves in their own dysfunction. Every time they looked back, every time they went to go back, they imprisoned themselves. And the same thing can happen to you and I. So here's what I want to leave you with, a question. Where is a lack of obedience limiting your freedom? Where is a lack of obedience limiting your freedom? Maybe small, maybe big. It could be public, it could be private. But we all have stuff in this world that kind of pulls us and pushes us to drift left or right into independence. Make you think like, oh, I got to start returning to something that used to be. 
But independence is always a precursor to disobedience. And you may not be facing giants or literal new land in front of you, but listen, you're facing obstacles that God is calling you to live victoriously in, in new ways and new areas. Don't look back. Don't go back. It may be an area of addiction. It could be an area of forgiveness or sickness or just fear in the face of an unknown where you don't quite see all the channel markers lining up yet. If you're, if you're not sure where God is leading you, if you don't know where to start, simply start with obeying with what he said in his word. He may be asking you to step in obedience in a really big thing. You know it, and you've been wrestling with it, and you're trying to get him to prove more and more like it's going to work out before you risk in obedience. It could be you've been wrestling with this thing. You know what I'm talking about when I say, what's the thing that's limiting your freedom? But if you don't know, you're like, Sean, I don't really know. All you have to do is start to obey what he said in his word. Start small. Just obey what he's already said. Those small steps lead to victory overcoming those giant problems. Because that obedience, whether it's big or small, has the same ripple. It allows him to work and move. And like the Israelites, man, we're all facing knowns and unknowns. And how we respond matters. Because they couldn't see. They didn't trust. And therefore didn't obey. But when a disciple of Jesus knows what God is asking, they obey regardless of the consequence, regardless of the implications. Where is a lack of obedience limiting your freedom? You know, there's a reason why we don't name our kids Shemua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gamiel. But we name them Joshua and Caleb. And if God is calling you to a new next, a step of obedience and trust, go. Don't look back. Step in bold obedience. Whenever we engage the things of this world in, a, in our own strength, we embrace fear, we embrace independence, we, we embrace arrogance and pride and a posture of independence, we start to live life in a manner we miss the things of God. We start to forfeit what, what could be as we choose what was. But whenever we embrace dependence and a posture of trust and obedience, God shows up and does the miraculous. He works in and through us in ways we never thought possible. And if he's calling you today to do something new, to step in bold obedience, do it. Do it. Let him show up and prove himself faithful as you depend on him. The moment you decide to embrace fear or pride, you try to take control, you are setting yourself up for a desert wandering. So get ready. If God has said go, if God has said do it, and you choose out of uncertainty, or you choose out of you think something's better, buckle up and prepare for a wandering, because it's coming. And your guilt can be removed in that, but not all the implications. Listen, everybody loses when we choose independence. As a church, we're committed to, to greater obedience, to greater risk, so we can multiply leaders and disciples and churches in these cities. So we can reach the 200,000 people who do not know Jesus. And we can love and serve all 400,000 people in the name of Jesus, making him famous. But that's going to require great dependence, great trust, great risks in obedience. But that's where he shows up. He does it corporately, but he also does it individually. And you have a next, but you get to decide what posture you take, and that defines what happens next in your journey overall.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in the midst of the complexity of life where there's certainty and uncertainty, you give us a place of relationship with you through Jesus where we can live with peace that passes understanding. We can have certainty amidst uncertainty as we trust you, as we put our hope not in our own strength and ability, but we place our trust and obedience in you and, and, and your strength and your ability. So Lord, as each of my friends process what their next area is, what area of life is limiting their freedom, and maybe for some today, it's that first decision to ever give their life to your son Jesus. It's that salvation moment. Lord, I pray you'd speak in these moments that they would respond and say, Lord, here am I. They would give everything that they are to you and step into a place of dependence. For those that have already done that, Lord, help us to stay in that posture. Don't let us drift left or right. Help us to choose in the midst of the complexity to fix our eyes on you and to trust you even though we can't see. Because, Lord, I know you have more to come. I know that, that your favor and blessing follows obedience. And, God, we don't ever want to step into sin by not doing what we know we're supposed to do. But we need your strength and your ability to help us do that. So, Lord, as we step back into worship through song, may you speak and lead each of us as we seek your face. I love you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.